When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from Ukraine, discuss the results of Vladimir Zelensky's visit to the US, and we interview photojournalist Justin Yao about his experiences documenting the full-scale invasion. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 13th of December, one year and 292 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, US editor, Tony Diver, assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and our guest is freelance photojournalist, Justin Yao. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Welcome, Justin. So last night, or through the night, at least 53 people said to have been wounded. No reports of deaths, interestingly, in an overnight Russian missile and drone attack on Kiev. City authorities said houses and a hospital were damaged by missile debris after being shot down by air defences around 3 a.m. this morning. Ukraine's army general staff said it was Iskander-M and S-400 missiles that were used alongside Shahid-131-136 drones. We think more than 20 civilians have been taken to hospital for emergency treatment. Ukraine's Air Force said it shot down, I'll come back to these numbers a little bit later, but they said they shot down all 10 ballistic missiles and 10 drones. Andrei Yermak, chief of staff to President Zelensky, said the effectiveness of Western weapons in the hands of Ukrainian soldiers cannot be doubted, clearly uh, in light of uh, where his boss uh, was or is at the moment. Um, But yeah, no less true for that. President Zelensky said that Russia had, quote, once again confirmed its title as a shameful country and said the attack proves that it, it is a terrorist state. In a statement, he said just yesterday, President Joe Biden and I agreed to work on increasing the number of air defense systems in Ukraine. The terrorist country demonstrated how important this decision is. Uh, Now then, in today's British MOD update, they're talking about Russian drones and they say Russia is dispersing the launch sites in a bid to protect them from Ukrainian attacks. A lot of these sites are in Crimea, and as they are increasingly in range of um, certainly Atakams, and if not soon, hopefully, HIMARS as well, Russia is having to disperse them. 
So in the latest defence intelligence update, MOD said Russia has five confirmed kamikaze or Shahid launch sites in Balaclava. That's on the southern tip of Crimea, just south of Sevastopol. Another one in Cape Chowder, which is towards the Kirsch Bridge, right in the southeast corner of, of Crimea. That's been used since early September this year. Then uh, another site in Yesk, which is on Russia's Sea of Azov coast, about 100 k southwest of uh, Rostov-on-Don. Primorsko, which is also Russia's southeast coast, about 50 k further south. And Kursk. Now, Kursk is actually quite far, a couple of hundred k's inside Russia, due north of, um, well, Kharkiv, that area, towards Moscow. And so that's the furthest one away. But those are the five launch sites that MO, British MOD say are responsible for a lot of the, a lot of the, the launches and the Shahids especially. Now, they also said that 15 Shahids were launched yesterday from Balaclava. Now, that doesn't tally. The reason I said, make a note of the numbers earlier on. So Ukraine's Air Force said they shot down 10 ballistic missiles and 10 drones. British MOD saying that 15 Shahids were fired yesterday from, um, from Balaclava. Anyway, whatever was launched and however many, Ukraine said they shot them all down, although there were casualties on the ground where they, uh, where they landed. Now the next one. Balaclava, well known from the Crimean War of the nineteenth century, of course. And where the uh, where the butcher in the Royal Scots Greys won the Victoria Cross, there one of go. my favourite oils in the mess, especially when Harry the Bastard, who was our regimental quartermaster sergeant, in a game of mess rugby, split his head open on the radiator and splashed blood all up the Balaclava oil. But story for another so day. The first time you've sworn on the pod, you call me F bomb. No, his name is Harry the Bastard. He was known as Harry the Bastard. Guys, is this what happens when I say we need to be done by sort of 145, 150? Let's get back to the news. Come on, Dom. So yesterday we talked about the the suspected hack of um, Ukraine's largest mobile phone operator. Now, a Russian hacker group has claimed responsibility for it. So Soltspec, sorry, we should have got Gaz on, he would have pronounced that correctly. They said they destroyed 10,000 computers, 4,000 servers and all of Kyivstar's backup and cloud systems in the attack. They said they, well, they justified their actions saying that Kyivstar provides communications to the armed forces of Ukraine, as well as government agencies and law enforcement agencies of Ukraine. But then speaking later on national television, Alexander Komarov, who's Kyivstar's general director, said, this is a war. It takes place not only on the battlefield, it also takes place in virtual space. And unfortunately, we are affected as a result of the war. Related to that, Ukraine's military intelligence department, the HUR, has claimed that it has completely destroyed Russia's tax system in a cyber attack of their own. In a statement, they said, military intelligence officers managed to penetrate one of the well-protected key central servers of the Federal Tax Service of the Russian Federation, and then more than 2,300 of its regional servers throughout Russia, as well as in the territory of the temporarily occupied Crimea. It also claimed to have deleted the system's database and backups um, and said that Russia had been trying to repair it for four days without success. No response yet from um, from Russia. Uh, a couple more quickly. So Reuters are reporting sources in US intelligence saying that nearly 90% of the soldiers who were serving in Russia's army when it invaded Ukraine last year have been killed or injured. So they're quoting from a declassified report that said Russia has suffered 315,000 casualties. Remember, casualties are killed, wounded, missing and prisoner. 315,000, which represents 87% of the initial invasion force. Um, Losses in personnel and armoured vehicles have also set back Russia's military modernisation by 18 years, one of the sources told Reuters. 
So we think we think Russia began the, the full-scale invasion with 3,100 tanks and has lost about uh, 2,200 of them. We know they've had to backfill with really old T-62, sometimes even T-54, 55 tanks, very, very old. We think they've only got around about 1,300 left on the battlefield, but the source told Reuters the scale of the losses has forced Russia to take extraordinary measures to sustain its ability to fight. Just finally, Finland says it's going to double its ammunition production capacity by 2027. The current decision will significantly increase the production of production capacity of heavy ammunition, enabling long-term support for Ukraine to the 2030s. That's Defence Minister Antti Hakkinen. The uh, investment is going to be about 130 million US dollars worth. Again, long-term, but just like the Maritime Capability Coalition that we were talking about earlier this week, all these things are the building blocks of long-term defence support for Ukraine after the war. Of course, big question between now and then, and none of these things have um, mutual, supportive, collective defence treaties, like Article 5 in NATO, basically, is what I'm trying to say. But not not bad. It's a good, it's a good way to start, and uh, hopefully others will follow suit. And I'll take a pause there, David, while I give Francis a Chinese birth. Thank you very much for that, Dom. US editor Tony Dover, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, yourself, Francis, and your colleague Susie Cohen have been covering uh, the visit of Vladimir Zelensky to the US um, over the past few days. Uh, it all happened yesterday afternoon, so after we'd gone on air. Can you talk us through the day? What happened? Hi, David. Yes, I can. With apologies in advance, I've succumbed to a traditional pre-Christmas cold, so I probably don't sound quite as good as I usually do on this podcast. But let me talk you through what happened Yesterday. So, as I said when we spoke yesterday, there were a series of meetings that Zelensky had planned in Washington, which is basically trying to target some of those pinch points that we're familiar with in the US legislature, Republicans basically who don't support additional money going to Ukraine from the US. So, I'll just talk through sort of in order what happened and then we can get into some of the analysis and detail on it. But first of all, he went and met with Republican senators. It was a behind closed door meeting, which traditionally then leaked and people discussed what was going on there. And Zelensky himself described it as a friendly meeting. He usually does after these meetings. He tends to say that they all went quite well and everyone spoke happily. The reviews from some Republicans who were in the room was not quite the same. They said that they still weren't convinced basically that the US should be spending extra money on supporting the war in Ukraine. And most of them said the reason that they weren't is because they were still seeking concessions from the White House on border control measures, which is, as we know, the price that these Republicans have demanded for their support. So that that meeting happened behind closed doors. There was a bit of briefing afterwards. Perhaps the most interesting thing was Lindsey Graham, Republican senator, who said that President Zelensky should be grateful to Mike Johnson, the House Speaker, for even contemplating bringing a bill on Ukraine to the floor of the House of Representatives when he knows that there are so many Republicans in that room who are against it on principle. So that was quite interesting. He's basically saying that you should be Zelensky should be pleased that we're even thinking about giving you any money, let alone whether or not we'll actually do it, which at the moment before Christmas looked quite unlikely. So I think it was a pretty clear indication that the mood on this stuff has changed. Um, and, uh, you know, an indication of quite how hostile some of these Republicans are feeling towards additional requests from Ukraine. So Zelensky then went from that meeting to meet Mike Johnson, the man he was meant to have thanked, which he did later do on Twitter, I spotted last night. He actually thanked him for doing exactly that. We didn't hear much from Zelensky on what happened in that meeting, but we did hear that 
Mike Johnson say that he thought that Biden had not done enough. He said that the Biden's response had been insufficient to these requests from Ukraine. And that's once again, those Republicans trying to push this issue back onto the White House and say, well, look, if you really care about Ukraine, and if you really want them to win the war, then you need to move on border security and trying to make out that it is, in fact, the Biden administration that's being difficult on this rather than the Republicans in Congress. So he had that meeting. And then from there, he went to the White House where he met Biden himself. Uh, the two of them did a on-camera meet and greet, a grip and grin, as they call it. And then they went into a private bilateral meeting. And from that, there were a couple of interesting bits. Biden said that the US would support Ukraine for as long as we can, which is actually a pretty significant departure from his previous language in which he said, we'll support Ukraine for as long as it takes. So that was a sort of tacit admission from Biden that actually the support for Ukraine from the US may actually be finite, even though the war is continuing, because his hands have been tied by what's going on in Congress at the moment. And he also announced right at the end of that quick meeting, he said to the press that the US would release an extra $200 million worth of aid for Ukraine, which is a bit of a drop in the ocean, to be honest, compared to the money that's been spent already. And that's part of a package that had already been authorised by Congress. So as we discussed yesterday, there is a bit of leftover money in the tank that's already been approved. And that's being dripped out over the next few weeks and months until more money can be approved. So we got the latest tranche of that in what the White House hoped would come across as a positive headline. But of course, those of us who follow it know that it's not really going to make that much of a difference at all. So that was the full day. And there was some sort of warm language between Biden and Zelensky at the end. But really, the thing, the most interesting thing about all of those meetings is not what we got, but what we didn't get, which is any real sort of clear indication of what Ukraine can get as a result of these meetings. No real agreement either between Zelensky and Biden or between Biden and those uh, intransigent Republicans. And basically not very much movement at all. I think we came out of yesterday with fairly little light on what the debate how the debate has moved and, and a, f- a fair amount of heat in language from those people. Thank you very much, Tony, for talking us through that. It's interesting what you said there about Biden's language. I do remember talking to, I think it was Alexei Goncharenko, the opposition Ukrainian MP, who said he'd much prefer supporters and allies of Ukraine to say whatever it takes, not as long. And as you said, Biden's Biden's tweaked that again, uh, which is very interesting. So just zooming out before we go to Francis's thoughts on this, Tony, if we were to try and sum this up, did, did this feel like this? Did this feel like a positive day for Ukraine supporters? Or it almost sounds like you're suggesting they're still sort of treading water. They're still trying to get through th- things through And as you said, it doesn't sound like anything's going to happen before Christmas. Is that roughly where we are? Yeah, I think that's it. To be honest, David, I don't think that we particularly got much new from all of those meetings. We perhaps fleshed out the Republican position on this a little bit more. We got a sense of their frustrations and we got a little bit more blame game going on between the White House and those Democrats in Congress, either those Republicans in Congress. But that really, I think, is probably as far as it got us. And just very quickly, Tony, what happens now? I mean, do we have a sense of what needs to be done? When, when does the House rise, for example? Because a lot of this is, it comes down to do they actually have the time in the, in, in the uh, legislature to get this through? Well, the House is rising tomorrow evening and they are considering some bits of legislation today. They're considering the Biden impeachment probe, whether or not to launch an impeachment against the president and a couple of other smaller pieces of legislation. There's one on um, the banning of whole fat milk, actually. So, I mean, that perhaps gives you some sense of the uh, of the priorities of Mike Johnson, the Republican House Speaker, who's bringing these pieces of legislation through. Essentially, it tells us that they've not got to a point yet where they've been able to agree something with the White House that would able will be able to get through. So that is looking very likely that we're now going to be waiting until next year for something here. That may prompt a change in the strategy for the White House. They've gone through various strategies of trying to get this stuff through. Previously, they've put through 
through smaller packages at a time. That was when there was more support available, and so they could be pretty sure that this stuff would go through. They've now shifted to uh, to what is being called a one and done strategy, which is, in other words, you put enough money into the pot that could last until after the next election when there's a different administration and they also have the options just to put these things through individually or whether to wrap them together in, in in other pieces of legislation or as these republicans want into some kind of border bill which would give additional money to border security uh in the south of the us so you know i, th- I suspect what happens now is we go into a Christmas period where these White House strategists will try and work out what their best chance of getting this through is early next year, um, and probably a bit of backdoor negotiation with some of those Republicans as well in an attempt to work out some kind of compromise. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think for supporters of Ukraine in the US, yesterday was a bit of a frustrating day because it really just laid out that we've not really got very much further in the last month and a half. And, you know, all this time it's having pretty serious impact on what's going on on the ground. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony. Do hope you feel better soon. Thanks. Tony Diver, our US editor. Francis Sternley, assistant comment editor, do you want to share your thoughts on the events of yesterday? Well, thanks, David. The American predicament is profound, and I cannot recommend highly enough the important interview with the former US presidential advisor Fiona Hill in Politico, which is the best summary, I think, of where we are and where we're headed unless things change. It's called We'll Be at Each Other's Throats, Fiona Hill on What Happens If Putin Wins. She argues that a world in which Putin chalks up a win in Ukraine is one where the US's standing in the world is diminished, where Iran and North Korea are emboldened, where China dominates the Indo-Pacific, where the Middle East becomes more unstable and where nuclear proliferation takes off among allies as well as enemies. As she says, Ukraine has become a battlefield now for America and America's own future, whether we see it or not, for our own defensive posture and preparedness, for our reputation and our leadership. For Putin, Ukraine is a proxy war against the United States to remove the United States from the world stage. She talks in detail about how US domestic politics has become the main obstacle to Ukraine's ability to win. The problem, she says, is that many members of Congress don't want to see Biden win on any front. People are thinking less about US national security, European security, international security and foreign policy, and much more about how they can humiliate Biden. But it's not just the US. As she states, Ukraine has now become a domestic political issue in many countries, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Germany, for instance. And that's an issue where it's going to be very hard for Ukraine to win. Because when you get into those transactional issues of domestic politics, and you're no longer thinking about national security, all those larger imperatives, then it's very easy for things to get knotted in the weeds. Another key point she makes is the ramifications not only on how America's enemies will be emboldened, but its allies might view its perceptions of the West differently how the US's weaknesses will be used as leverage by Russia and others to draw them closer into their orbit. She says, Putin has, for example, approached the Japanese and said, look, we can be your interlocker with China. The US is not going to be there to assist you in a crunch. And that's certainly what this is going to look like. The Japanese, the South Koreans, the Vietnamese, others that we have bilateral treaties with are going to wonder, Okay, the US made such a push here to support Ukraine, among with other European members of NATO, and now they've just walked away from it. And you put that on top of Afghanistan and withdrawal, Iraq, Syria, and the whole fraught history of US interventions of the last two decades. And Putin will be able to present a potent narrative about the US's inability to maintain its commitments and forfeiting its role as an international leader. So that's a major political win for him. 
Lastly, she stresses the vital point about what a negotiated peace now favouring Russia would mean for the Ukrainians. Putin will basically say to Ukraine, you could have done all this, handed over all these territories to us without hundreds of thousands of people dying. And then there will be a constant flow of Russian propaganda and influence operations against Ukraine, in which Russians will accuse the Ukrainians of violating the ceasefire or manipulating negotiations and will stir up political strife. Crucially, this will not end. It will go on forever. It will be a great win for Putin because he will be able to move on to the next part of the game while everyone else is stuck in place. He thinks in terms of bouts and tournaments, like the judo professional he was before in his youth. If he doesn't win the first bout outright, he might win the second and still move on to victory. As she summarises starkly, Putin is not winning yet, but he's about to, and it's on us. We're at the point where it's on us. If we leave the field, then he will win. The decision is ours. This decision is entirely ours. Essential reading. Now, in other political news, just briefly, more frustration for Zelensky as Viktor Orban has, as we speculated yesterday, vowed to block the EU from starting accession talks with Ukraine. Speaking to MPs at the Hungarian Parliament, Mr Orban said that the time for Ukraine to join the bloc had not yet come and that the end of the war with Russia was a prerequisite for it to become a member. He said, we're interested in a peaceful and prosperous Ukraine, but this requires the establishment of peace as quickly as possible and a deliberate deepening of the strategic partnership. He then added that such a process would take a number of years. Now, of course, interestingly, it would take a number of years even if the accession talks began. But that doesn't seem to have been something he's been keen to discuss in more detail. And yet, and crucially, an advisor to Orban has said Hungary will support the EU starting accession talks with Ukraine if the bloc unblocks £25 billion worth in withheld funding. Those funds are the ones that have been blocked by the EU due to its concerns about the rule of law and anti-corruption measures in Hungary. So what this advisor told Bloomberg is that Hungary's EU funding and Ukraine's financing are two separate issues. But if the EU insists that Ukraine's financing should come from an amended EU budget, then the two issues become linked. And that might reveal why there were those reports in recent days that claim the EU Commission is preparing to unblock £8 billion worth of those withheld funds. But what's not clear is whether that will just unblock some of the funding to Ukraine or whether it may well be the gateway to opening or Hungary being willing to permit those accession talks. But fundamentally, this is exactly what Fiona Hill is talking about when domestic wrangling trumps national and international security with potentially disastrous results. But evidently, this saga is not quite over. Slovakia, interesting, were were a country that some people were concerned would also say they were going to block the start of the accession talks. They have not done that. They have not objected. So that is some positive news for Ukraine. But nonetheless, a frustrating one. And I'm sure that Joe Barnes will be keeping us informed of what's going on in Hungary, both in print and on the podcast soon. And just finally, after his trip to Washington, Zelensky has now arrived in Oslo, Norway, to participate in the second Ukraine-Northern Europe summit. Together with leaders of Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Finland and Sweden, he said, we will talk about the strengthening of defence, political and economic cooperation and about our common future in Europe. Our goal is security and a just and durable peace on the continent. 
And just staying with the Nordic nations, Finland is set to reopen those two border crossings with Russia after shutting its frontier in November. After that surge in migrants, it said had been orchestrated by Moscow to sow disorder, but warned that if the phenomenon continues, they will close the border crossings again. But I imagine there'll be more on that tomorrow. Well, thank you very much, Francis Durnley, US editor Tony Diver and Dom Nichols for all of those updates. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome our guest today, Justin Yao. Justin is an American photojournalist from the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And as well as covering the Russian invasion of Ukraine, he's also covered topics as diverse as political extremism and climate change with bylines uh, across the media, including Reuters and the LA Times. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just tell us where you're calling from and a little bit about yourself and your work? Thank you so much for having me, you guys. Uh, I'm currently phoning in from Kiev. Actually, just returned from a, a long work trip for, uh, in the Donbas region of Ukraine, covering the, the uh, some of the harsher fighting as the winter is settling in. Uh, I've been in country uh, since January of 2022, uh, late January. I've taken a few breaks, but I've uh, mostly been in country, covering pretty much uh, the, the development of the war, everything from the Battle of Kiev to the Kharkiv and Kherson liberations, uh, the Battle of Bakhmut, uh, currently the, the, the siege of Avdivka. So far, just focusing mainly on wire photos. It's my main uh, contribution, so to speak. Um, I take wire photos. So I try to be as diverse as possible with how I cover my coverage of, of this war. But unfortunately, I usually get stuck covering the more conventional things, whether it be uh, military and operations at the front, and less so about the more interesting and, I think, heartfelt stories that kind of fall by the wayside. Thanks so much for that introduction, Justin. Could you talk us through some of the most memorable, I mean, I guess in a positive and negative sense for you, images and stories that you've covered over over the past two years? I think my most memorable image uh, was actually the one that went quite viral on the first day of the invasion on the 24th of February. And it was the one of the first salvos of Russian cruise missiles that had hit the Kharkiv region in a town called Shekhoiv, which is a suburb town south of Kharkiv. And the photos of the, a woman, Olena, who is a school teacher in the region, with a bandaged and bloodied face trying to explain to me what was going on. And I believe uh, three, three other journalists uh, on the ground with me at the time also took photos of her that uh, went quite viral and uh, I think really defined the, the, the first day of the war and, and also painted a much bigger picture about Russians, the tactics of Russia and the brutality of what conventional war in the 21st century will look like. But um, Justin, could we come to December, November, December 2023 then. Can you tell us about your last trip? Where were you? And tell us about the stories you were covering. Um, I was in the Donbass region mainly. I've worked in the kind of the three the three main axes of contact. So um, the Shasivyar direction, which is the front that is dividing kind of Ukrainian forces and the, the city of Bakhmut, which was recently been taken by, by the Russians. I've also covered the news in the Kupiansk direction, where it's in the Kharkiv Oblast. And also um, loosely been trying to cover the siege of the city of Avdivka, although access has been quite difficult. But ultimately, I think there's a general picture in the front lines. The winter is setting in. Mud season is setting is setting in. The quality of life of soldiers is, is, is drastically decreasing. It's cold. It's always muddy. It's uh, near impossible to move. And uh, with the new threat of FPV drones, these 
very cheaply manufactured munition carrying drones that can crash into positions that uh, makes the front line really difficult right now to reach. And, and uh, of course, everything is worsened by, by the rain, the snow, the weather and the mud. Just thinking of your last trip, then, if you were to pick one of your images that you think shows shows what life in the trenches, what life as a soldier is like most accurately, what would you pick and what would we see in it? It was actually a zoomed in photo of soldiers' boots in a town called New York, funnily enough. New York has been a frontline city since 2014, and the soldiers of the 24th Mechanized Brigade has been holding the line since then, until now. And I think the one photo is a soldier standing in a trench with layer upon layer of mud upon his boots. And it comes from parts of the trench being dry and quite sandy with loose dirt, and other parts of the trench being completely wet or muddy. So the first layer of mud would get you a very loose layer of dry sand, the next layer of mud with so on, so on, so on. So you have about 10 kilos of mud on your shoes collectively. Uh, it's something that's hard, hard to explain to somebody looking at a photo or a video, how much of an impediment that is to, to walking around and existing, trying to complete your duties in the front line. Justin, from your perspective, having been in, in countries for so long, what stories or issues in Ukraine that do you think are underreported or maybe even ignored by the international media or to flip the question around slightly what issues do you think deserve more attention as you guys know ukraine has gone through its second wave of mobilization and i think the current age of the average age of the fighting soldier in, in the ukrainian armed forces is about 43 to 45 and um the, the, these men are, are recently mobilized and, and a lot of the time their commanding officers and more senior soldiers with them are, are much younger uh between the ages of, of late teens to the mid-20s. And I think that this kind of relationship has never been before seen, right, in, in kind of modern or contemporary warfare since World War II or, or even before then, that, that very much o- older soldiers are being led by very young soldiers. And this phenomenon is becoming very ubiquitous throughout the front. And I find that really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I'm not smart enough to really talk about the implications of what that means and how that might affect combat readiness or anything like that. But I think that's... People focus on, yes, the, the average age of the Ukrainian army is skyrocketing right now. But that, that relationship, the satiric relationship between the young and the old, I think is, is really interesting. And uh, I haven't really seen too many people talk about it. Just a couple more quick questions from me, Justin. Thank you so much. This is really fascinating. Obviously, being a photojournalist is a little bit different to, 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 to writing, to doing audio. How do you establish the trust you need between the people that you're following about and talking to get to the point where you can say, you know, can I take a picture of that? Well, you know, are you comfortable? How, how does that work for you? I think, yeah, trust is absolutely uh, an essential element in, in being able to take good and honest photos that's representative of, of your subjects and, and what you're trying to photograph. And I think it's, it's just honesty. It's being completely honest about where you're coming from and what you're trying to do. And as I found the Ukrainian folks, my subjects here, they, they want to tell the world what is going on. But at the same time, the culture has this level of pride. They don't want people to see them suffering. So it, it takes some time. It depends on the person. But ultimately, I think being completely honest, being friendly, and being uh, most importantly empathetic is, is, goes a long way. I think certain things are universal, you know, across this culture, bridges the cultural gaps. Honesty, empathy, and trying to convey these emotions through your photographs is love, happiness, sadness, anger, ennui. I think all these are quite universal, and I think taking a good photo and, and, and creating the conditions 
and earning your subjects trust is all kind of part and parcel. But definitely, like I said, empathy, I think, is the most important thing and, and honesty. Have you had many, I don't want this to sound too trite at all, but have you had many sort of pinch yourself moments when you realize that you've been a witness to history and the photos that you've taken will be how people frame and think of what's happening in Ukraine? I take my work really seriously, but a lot of the time I, I honestly don't really think about the gravity of the work that we're all doing here. You know, I'm, I'm one very small part, one lens out of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And um, But I think, yeah, I, I've had several pinch myself moments. Of, like, you know, when uh, the first day when the, when the full-scale invasion began, I, I, like many Ukrainian folks, just didn't think that it would happen that the Kremlin would have such audacity to make a push for Kremlin, you know, for Kiev and other major cities in Ukraine, the full-scale invasion. That was definitely like the biggest pinch myself moment, uh, is driving at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. from the town of, from Bakun, actually, to, to Kharkiv, where I eventually took that photo and uh, covered a, a missile strike in a civilian um, apartment complex. I think, uh, I mean, it's a lot to process, and I don't think I, I truly have I don't think most journalists, photojournalists or otherwise here, really would fully appreciate the gravity of what we're going through and and what you know these folks we see in Ukraine are going through until much later. But yes, to answer your question, I did have a lot of many pinch myself moments, and it's usually after witnessing something very tragic happening in front of you. Justin, hi, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can I? Just following on from that, can I ask you about your craft in a bit more, I guess, more detail, but more generally, I suppose, in terms of the news side of photo journalism, how do you make the choice between stills, video? What was the, the power? Talk to me about the power of, the, of an image, still or video against words. And when you choose to use color, black and white, how do you make these decisions when you're thinking about a situation that you may or may not be going into? Because I guess when it when it all starts moving very quickly, you don't have time to to, to adjust much. But what do you what's your feeling on the, the the power of the image and how you make your decisions? Absolutely, uh, I've I've only ever shot image in my time here in Ukraine. You know, I, I've I've had cell phone videos and whatnot that I've put up on, on social media, but I've uh, mostly focused on just taking still images and you know i go go by the wire rules i don't really edit very much in terms of color grading and whatnot and only pretty much shooting color but i think the 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 stopping power of a photo is tasting food from a culture you've never experienced for the first time i think being able to convey emotion from one end of the earth to another from one culture to one that's completely different i think is trying to convey the emotion of humans is bridging the gap from one human to another and um I think helping people understand what's going on through photos is ultimately translating and capturing and translating the, that that emotion that that your subjects may, may be feeling, and, and helping the person on the other end reading a newspaper or, or scrolling through Twitter uh, be able to understand and feel the same thing for a brief moment. Does that make sense? I, I don't. I don't know. No, it does. It does. It does make sense. I was, I was going to follow up by asking. I mean, as kids, we. I messed around with pinhole cameras and what have you, but we started off with with words more than much earlier than we played with with cameras because that's easy and that's how the human develops. But when did you know that you wanted to go down the the image route and the the photojournalism route as opposed to 
words or any other form of art what was it in you that really spoke about images are the, the, the way to do it i actually started my career writing mainly covering you know my backyard the city of portland it's where i first started work, working professionally and i felt like I, I was very comfortable writing about portland it's my backyard i live and breathe it and i did not feel the same level of comfort when I arrived to Ukraine, I just did not have the historical knowledge, the cultural knowledge, the, the language skills. To I, I feel like, you know, or, or just the journalistic skills to, to do, do these folks justice, to, to, to do justice for what is happening. So that's why I went with a photograph. Something that I, I understand, that's, you know, something that I've loved at a young age. Uh, like you said, I didn't have a pinhole camera, but one of the most cherished gifts I've had is from my father was a Nikon F401. And that's, I still use Nikons today because of that. And uh, I think being able to convey emotion and something more universal, I think, is, is what drove me to, to photo instead of words. Uh, not to under, underplay the power of words. Like there, there are certain times when I wish I could convey a certain feeling or thing with a photograph or a video when 300 words can do it much better than anything I can shoot in a year. Justin, thanks so much for your time today. Just one question from me. You spoke about war photography generally, and of course it's well known, the amazing work of Robert Capper in the Second World War and Don McCullen more recently. I'm interested in your influences, first of all, but also you alluded to it earlier. This is a war where there are hundreds of thousands of lenses all the time taking images, and many of them are civilians who are, of course, experiencing regular attacks or are chronicling their own lives. Just wondered, how do you as a war photographer, an official one, as it were, in inverted commas, how does that differ and how do you reflect on the relationship with those who are doing more informal photography? Do you see them as in conflict or do you see them as very different things? Just interested in your general reflections on war photography in the 21st century. I definitely think there's a difference between photojournalism in, in the kind of classic orthodox sense and what photographers are doing out there. But I can't stress this enough is that like every camera lens out there capturing what's going on is providing social utilities. It's uh, providing a perspective that we would not otherwise have. It's giving future historians more to study and more to know. Uh, I definitely think that they're amateur photographers. I, I know many Ukrainian photojournalists who are working now are previously are, are wedding photographers or commercial photographers, and, and they're doing their utmost in this time of terrible war to, to document what's going on in their homes. And yeah, actually, Robert Kappa is one of my favorites, but I think James Noctway and his style of composition and framing is very powerful, something that, that has really inspired me. Uh, he's, he's definitely one of the, you know, I'd say like top five most well-known conflict reporters in the 20th and 21st century. He's uh, inspired a lot of my work. And also, I think some of my biggest inspirations are people I've met here, my fellow colleagues, who I've, their work that I've seen is truly inspiring. Sometimes it's kind of like disheartening. It's like, well, I can never shoot like that. But uh, it's definitely great to see, not not just what you've missed, but but because other people out there are capturing these very crucial moments in history, that what is gained from that. Justin, this has been absolutely fascinating to hear you speak about this. It's fairly rare that we get a photojournalist on, so thank you so much for your time. We'll come back to you at the end for your final thoughts, but let's go to Dom or Francis first. 
Thanks, David. Each day, The Telegraph publishes two leaders summarising the collective opinion of the paper on the issues of the day. Yesterday, we wrote one on Zelensky's visit to Washington, which summarises the state of play in the European defence context. Now, I'm sworn to secrecy as to who wrote it, but listeners (coughs) may find the voice familiar. I wanted to read it because it complements Fiona Hill's summary in the US sphere. The visit of President Vladimir Zelensky to Washington is indicative of the nervousness in Ukraine about whether the United States will continue to give it the financial and military support it needs to withstand Vladimir Putin's invasion. A congressional battle over new aid has raged for weeks, with sceptical Republicans deriding what they see as a blank cheque for Kyiv, despite almost 90% of the money allocated for Ukraine in the defence budget remaining in the United States, financing the production of weapons and other materiel. Unfortunately for Ukraine, European leaders have also failed to follow through on their grand promises. By some estimates, EU nations have only placed orders for 60,000 artillery shells under the scheme to give the Ukrainians a million rounds of ammunition by next spring. Despite President Zelensky's pleas, Germany refuses to donate its Taurus cruise missiles, concerned about an escalation of war. Yet that escalation is already happening. Russia has put its economy onto a war footing and announced large increases in military spending. Last week, the head of Poland's National Security Bureau warned that unless Russian ambitions are checked now, Moscow will be ready to fight a war on NATO's eastern flank within three years. One of the central questions posed by this conflict, how Europe proposes to defend itself in a world in which enemy powers are prepared to launch wars of aggression, has still not been answered. Despite commitments from its leaders and with the possible exception of Poland, little has changed. This question will come into even sharper focus if Donald Trump, a NATO sceptic, wins the US presidential election next year. In that context, one has to wonder, has Europe left it too late? Thank you very much, Francis Sternley. Dom Nichols. Well, riffing off that a little bit, I just noticed today worth pointing out that in the current context of support for Ukraine, Germany, it's been confirmed that Germany has provided a second Patriot anti or sorry, air defence missile battery. And today, Ukraine, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs have just said that Norway is going to send additional NASAMS air defence as well to the tune of about 25 million pounds, about 30 million US dollars, and an additional three times that amount additional industrial upload in spares, maintenance, ammunition and get the supply lines going again for on that side of it. So it is still happening in the background. I mean, these are not enormous figures, but they are very welcome and they all, uh, they need to continue. And it's going to, the, the current point, if the US does not sign this bill and of course throughout the end of next year, if, if the support becomes less and less, then there is enough money in the EU, EU plus Britain in Europe, writ large, to uh, to do this. It's just a question of political will, as uh, retired General Sir Richard Barons, the point he made at the Lucerne Dialogue a couple of weeks ago. So it's all down to political will rather than cost. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you like, as our guest, the very final words? No, just uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I've, alert, I've definitely learned a lot listening to you folks today and uh, wish everyone a uh, happy holidays coming up. Stay warm and stay safe. You too, Justin. And just for our listeners, how can people find your work? I am Justin Yao on X as well as uh, Instagram. Um, if you want to look at my photos, it's mostly on SEPA USA. And if you're in the US, check out the uh, AP Photo Wire. And if you're in Europe, also check out the Alamy Photo Wire. 
Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 